All right. Well, thank you, worship team. Good morning. A little different this week. Uh, pizza down in the warm weather. Really having a good time. He, I talked to him yesterday. Sounds like they're, they're having a blast. So uh, welcome to Mother's Day. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2, so I'll invite you to turn there. Uh, but while you're doing that, one of the things, if you didn't know, I used to be a middle school teacher. One of the things that I learned from my time as a teacher is that children are largely a product of their parents. If you're a parent, you know this. If you're a child, you're going to know it. Parents are, especially early in life, the largest influence on a child. Believe it or not, your parents played a huge part in making you, you. While we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel today, and we're going to be talking a little bit about Samuel, who you might remember from Sunday school. He gets this mysterious call in the middle of the night. He thinks it's Eli. It's not. It's God. He finally figures it out. Cool story, but we're going to start with Samuel's parents today. How did Samuel get to be the way he is? What were his parents like? How did they shape this godly leader? The book of Samuel, it comes out of a time of great difficulty for the nation of Israel, and it goes into one in which God's provision to the faithful is going to shine through. So in your Bibles, historically, prior to the book of Samuel, uh, we had the book of Judges. And if you were with us in the last year or so, I believe we went through the book of Judges. And if you weren't with us, I'll give you a couple highlights here. The short version is this. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. The long version of the highlight reel goes like this. It says Israel uh, ends the book of Judges and it shows the actions of the holy priesthood, the Levites. And their actions can be kind of summed up in these last few chapters. In 17 and 18, we see that the Levites are in fact spiritually blind, and we're going to see that today as well. That hasn't changed. But in Judges uh, uh, 17 and 18, we're going to see this spiritual blindness, and in 21, we're going to see the elders who are supposed to lead the nation of Israel, they decide they hatch this plan to go and kidnap a bunch of women uh, as like prisoners of war and take them as wives. These are the men leading the nation. In between those, these same elders, they decide to go to war against each other, and they, in doing so, kill tens of thousands of people for something that could have been resolved otherwise. They did what was right in their own eyes. This is not a nation that is after the heart of God. This is a nation that is in need of help. They need the prophesied prophet of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, which says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Spoilers, it's Samuel. We're going to get there. But God's not going to start this story with Samuel. We're going to start with his mother, Hannah. God's going to work through the most unlikely of people. He often does, but this, in this case, it's going to be a barren Israelite woman of a meager upbringing. She's from the middle of nowhere. There's nothing that makes Hannah exceptional in the eyes of men. But through Hannah and her faith, God's going to restore the priesthood, and he's going to restore order to the nation of Israel. God's going to show his love for his faithful people, but he's also going to show his dominion over human affairs. The very course of Israel's history is going to change for the better. But this story doesn't start that triumphantly. It starts, again, with Hannah. She's barren, and she is distraught. She can't 
have kids. And like Hannah, even though we may not understand at the time, God can use circumstances that are difficult to bring bring about his will. A lot of things in this world are, are, are just a result of the fall and sin. But in this case, the hand of God is at work. And so even in these times of difficulty, we have the opportunity to bring glory to God. And so Hannah is faced with this decision. Is she going to take the opportunity to respond in faith even in difficulty? Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 1. There was a certain man in Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up by, year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would bring portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant— And remember me, and forget not your servant, but will give your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Normally, when you start a story, there's a little introduction, there's developing of a character, maybe there's some background info, and the book of Samuel just kind of launches right into it. You get two verses, ah, we have an issue. The man has two wives, one has children, one does not. We hear of this man, Elkanah. He's got a wife that can't have children, but we also read that he's a man of faith. He makes yearly sacrifices. He makes a trip to Shiloh. He gives the sacrifice, but we also see that he loves his wife, Hannah, deeply. Remember, the Israelites, at this point, they only have the Torah for Scripture, right? First five books. Knowing that, there should be some other Bible characters that are going to come to mind when we think of Elkanah. We have a man with one wife, and... Sometimes, in the story of the patriarchs, they would take a second wife as a way to make an heir for their bloodline. Maybe the most obvious example that we see in Scripture is Abraham. Abraham's married to Sarah, who's barren. This should start to sound familiar now. And uh, he's told he's going to be the father of many nations, and yet he hasn't had a child yet, so he takes matters into his own hands. He gets Hagar pregnant. She has Ishmael. Now we have uh, all of his sons and sons and sons. But yet God remains faithful to Abraham and to his promise. And Sarah does bear a child, Isaac. And then Isaac and Jacob, they both share similar stories. Each time something like this happens, a child of great significance is born. Isaac, he's the son of the promise. 
Jacob. He's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here Samuel is likewise going to be a child of great significance. But we've got to go back to Hannah. Maybe you're wondering, why is her womb closed? Why is she so bent out of shape over it? But we quickly see that in verse 5, it's caused by the Lord. It's intentional. The Lord had closed her womb. And it's caused her great difficulty personally, but also shame before other people. Surely she's asked God, why me? Why is this happening? If God has commanded us as humans to be fruitful and to multiply, why then is she barren? Why are people today still barren? God has intentionally closed her womb for just the right time. God is going to use Hannah for a great work, and through Samuel, her son that's going to come, we're going to establish the kingship of David later on in the book. Because God closed her womb, it would require an act of God to open. This leaves God's divine fingerprints on the situation. But this isn't the only reason that Hannah's distraught. It's the root of the problem, right? She's barren, but it's not the only cause that we see. What is the other wife, Penina? What does she do? She insults Hannah again and again. And it's not even something that's Hannah's fault. She's just really trying to get a response. This isn't like a a new development for Penina. We read that she does this year after year to provoke her to a response. Every time they sacrifice, this happens. One of the things, and I I mentioned it earlier, we do it for Mother's Day here is we, we get flowers and we hand them out to mothers. And by the way, that's today. I don't know if I mentioned that. It's Mother's Day. So if you haven't told your mom happy Mother's Day and you're sitting right next to her, now is a good time. And as, as nice as the flowers are, there's some people who, who aren't able to have children. They're like Hannah. We, they, they can't have children. And so this might be a time where it's difficult. For Hannah, this is like Panina taking and rubbing that flower in her face. But it's not that nice. She's going to insult her marriage with Elkanah. She's going to just try to dig as deep as she can and make it hurt. Surely Hannah has reason to be distraught. Maybe she can seek some refuge in her husband. Elkanah, he seems to be a decent man. We see that he goes yearly for these sacrifices. He seems pious, and I I would say he is. We also know that he loves Hannah, and he loves her deeply. He means well, He acts righteously, but he misses the point most of the time. Did you catch that in his questions? Panina harasses Hannah year after year after year, and Elkanah is either completely unaware of the fact, or he has done nothing to help her. Then he he responds. Did you notice how many questions he asks? And I, He means well. He is going to comfort his wife. This is a good thing. But he makes all of her problems about himself. Isn't our love enough? It's melodramatic, isn't it? He's missed the point. He doesn't really understand her problem, and he's oblivious to it. So instead, Hannah is going to turn to God in faith. Hannah is often described as a woman of faith, and that's why we hear about her so often on days like Mother's Day. She is a woman of great faith. But what does Scripture tell us about her? 
In these first two chapters, we read, oh, this is, I mean, that's all of her account, right? We read so much about her. She's the only recorded uh, woman in the Old Testament who actually goes into the temple. Further, she's the only woman who makes a vow before the Lord and prays to God. She mentions his name more times than any other woman in all of Scripture. God is using someone here of low social and cultural status to show us what immense faith looks like. Surely God can help, but first we see Eli, the eldest priest, and he mistakes her fervent prayer for a drunken stupor. He might be the spiritual elder, but he is spiritually blind. Let's read what he says. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. This exchange here, it's going to remind us that God is equally accessible to men and women, even in the time of Israel, even despite what the cultural barriers of the time may have been. It doesn't mean that there are different roles as God's ordained in Scripture for men and women, but the accessibility to God is evident here. The story of Hannah is going to remind us that God is going to work, and he's going to continue to work through all types of people. In this case, it's a barren Israelite woman from the middle of nowhere. In other cases, it might be a younger sibling, a Moabite, you and I. God can work through all types of people. So Hannah has to assure Eli that she's not what he thinks she is, and she is, in fact, pious. She is there going before God to petition him. But once Eli realizes this, he kind of changes his tune a little bit. Verse 17 and 18, he answers, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Eli's supposed to be the spiritual head of Israel. He's in Shiloh, which is the the capital for uh, spiritual worship in the land of Israel, and this is supposed to be his job to lead the nation. And instead, he's only perceiving what's in the physical, not what's going on in the spiritual. He's oblivious to the work of God. Thankfully, he is able to uh, believe Hannah and recognize what's going on. He does encourage her. And perhaps the most beautiful part of this section is that as soon as she gets that encouragement, her face was no longer sad. And this is because Hannah has complete faith in the power of God. God responds to Hannah's request. Verses 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord. And here we see that Hannah's response, and therefore our response when God works, it matters. She went to God in prayer and asked for help. This isn't what we've seen in other situations up to this point in Scripture. 
This isn't the example that Hannah has to draw back on. Jephthah in Judges doesn't do this. It ends not terribly well. The Canaanite woman in Genesis 16, same story, doesn't end well. Instead, Hannah goes to God in faith. She's the first to do so. But that's not how we like to solve this kind of a problem today. Often we struggle to be faithful even in much, much smaller problems. We tend to resolve, well, I'll just do better next time. I can do it. I got it. When in fact we should be going before God. Then when that kind of a case, our actions say that we don't think that we need God. And when so many things are easily accessible to us and there's so many options, it's easy to think that we don't need God. But Hannah's a reminder that we do, and if we aren't trusting God in the small things, then why would he answer in difficult situations like this? In contrast, Hannah is characterized as a faithful woman. There's a commentator, his name is Robert Bergen. He describes Hannah like this. He says, Hannah was certainly portrayed as more intimate in her relationship with the Lord than Eli, the spiritual icon of his generation. Within her prayers in chapter 1, Hannah seven times uses Yahweh's name, whereas Eli never uses the term. He instead uses the more distant phrase, God of Israel. So how does Hannah respond? God has heard her prayer. He has answered her prayer. And so now Hannah gets to respond. First, she's going to remain faithful to her word. She made a vow before God. She's going to remain faithful and raise Samuel in the ways of the Lord and prepare for his dedication. Nowhere along the way does Hannah waver in this commitment. She follows through. Once Samuel is weaned, he's able to be away from his mother. Then she takes him to the temple. She dedicates him, and he's going to stay with Eli and serve in the temple there. Surely, if, if you're a parent, it may have been tempting to want to keep the child, because it's, you know, your child. But just because Samuel's going to live at the temple doesn't mean that his mom is never going to see him again. In fact, she's going to see him year after year, and if you want to skip ahead to the end of the story, Samuel, he ends up moving back to Ramah. Spoilers. She would see her son often, and she loves Samuel, but she knows he's a gift from God, and therefore he's going to be used for God's plan, and so she follows through. Hannah responds not only with action, but she responds in prayer and exultation. Hannah's prayer celebrates the good work that God has done, and It proclaims God as having dominion, and we read this prayer in chapter 2, but depending on your perspective, the dominion of God can either be really comforting or it can be really terrifying. For those of us here today who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the sovereignty of God is a wonderful and beautiful thing, and we should be thankful for that. Hannah, I think, would agree. So Hannah begins with this praise for deliverance, and she's going to take us through her prayer on a journey through the character of God. So let's read her prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and, he ha- and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah starts this off in verse 1. She gives this personal expression of joy and of hope because of what God has given her. We see the word exalt with an A, and we see the word exalt with a U are both being used here. And the first is going to be, uh, it's lifting up and it's glorifying someone or something. And to exalt is to rejoice and to celebrate. Hannah has reason to do both of these. God has seen her affliction, and in his time, he has delivered her. Out of this place of praise, Hannah makes the first proclamation about who God is. And out of this one, all of the rest of her proclamations flow. She tells us this, there is none holy like the Lord. She follows this up by calling him the rock, which if you were to look through the book of Deuteronomy, that's where he's called the rock through and through. She knows her scripture. She knows her God. She is a woman of great faith. So if there is none like the Lord, what is he like? The next series of verses is list after list after list. God is. Verse 3 says that God is an all-knowing God. Verse 4, God is all-powerful. Verse 5 shows God is able to provide spiritually and physically for his people. Verses 6 through 8, they show that God holds ultimate dominion over his creation. That's the summation up to that point. And this is summarized in this. The pillars, the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. He is the God over all that we see and all that we know. Verse 9 tells us God is the faithful protector of his people. And if God is able to hold control over man and over creation, then who better to have as a protector? Surely God is able to provide what we need. And therefore, for Hannah as well, God is a refuge for his people. And verse 10 adds that just as God is a refuge uh, for the faithful, he is also the judge over the wicked. This is a picture of a God who is present. He is sovereign. He is magnificent in power, but he's a personal God. He cares and hears his people. Hannah's using this proclamation of God's character to lead us to the truth in her story that ultimately God's people can have faith because of who God is. In other words, God's people can have faith even in times of affliction like Hannah's in because they can be sure that God is present. He's listening and he's able to work in and through them. So Hannah's story and her response are going to lead us to three concluding truths here. The first is seen in who Hannah is. First, your position before God is much more important than your position before men. 
Bergen says it similarly. This passage also teaches that true power is to be found not in one's position in society, but one's posture before God. In the eyes of society, Hannah is nothing. She is a barren woman. She has a heritage of no importance. She lives in the middle of nowhere. And she has no hope of fulfilling her cultural purpose to produce an heir. But God sees her affliction. He sees her heart. And she sees, uh, he sees that she is faithful to him. And to God, that's what matters. An incorrect heart posture leads to spiritual blindness. We see this through the Levites. We see this through Eli. And if God has used Hannah in this mighty way, giving birth to the leader of his people, why do we assume that God can't use people like us? Maybe you've felt, and I think we've all felt this at times, maybe you've felt like there's, there's nothing really significant that you have to add to God because he's God. Hannah reaffirms that God works in all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, whether that's through loving your neighbor, serving in the nursery, handing out flowers at the end of service today, bearing in one another's burdens, or maybe you've led a revival. God works in different ways through different people, and God is able to do this. We have every reason to believe that God can and will continue to work through his faithful people. Second, When God acts, we should respond in exaltation and exaltation. God is certain to be present in our lives. And when he acts, we have reason to exalt, celebrate. And we have reason to exalt, to lift up the name of God for what he has done. To celebrate the goodness of God. We recognize uh, the hand of God and we exalt and we recognize that the work of God is good so we exalt, we rejoice. Third, like Hannah, God's people, they can have faith even in times of affliction because they can be sure that God is present, he's listening, and he's able to work in them. And for most people, faith is most easily shaken when life is difficult. No? When we forget who our God is, he is sovereign, he is caring, he is a strong refuge for his people, and we forget he's present in our lives, we're left with our own power, which is nothing in compared to the power of God. We try to come up with man-made solutions to problems that require the work of God to solve. Instead, through the story and life of Hannah, we see a strong, dependable God that is worthy of placing our trust in. So for us today, we get this opportunity to respond. We get to respond to God, to his work in our lives through the work of Christ. We get to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit, to the work uh, through the teaching of the word. And we have even more reason to trust and respond than even Hannah does because not only is God, he's not only present and working, but he's given us eternal life through his son Jesus, something that uh, Hannah in the Old Testament didn't even know was going to happen. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we see God as the personal and living God. He holds power over life and death. God is a personal God who acts on behalf of his faithful. Together we have much reason to exalt, to rejoice, and to exalt, to lift high the name of God. If you'd stand with me, we're going to continue in our time of worship. 
Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thank you, thankful for just the, uh, the different stories that you've contained in it, God, that reveal who you are. God, we know that your, your entire word is uh, God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching. Uh, and God, we pray for this, this story to um, impact how we see you. Whether that's uh, in drawing us to you to see, uh, God, that you are capable, that you are a God who is present and listening and caring for his people, and that we need to place our trust in you, or whether we need to continue to trust you as you call us to uh, go forth and, and, and proclaim your name and to serve in different ways. God, we pray for our trust to be placed solely in you and not in uh, our, our man-made solutions. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son and that you saw it to be good to send him to die in our place. God, I pray that we would take this opportunity to respond to you, to respond to your work, that we would lift high your name because we have much reason to celebrate. It's in your name we pray. Amen.